So we're in Matthew chapter 24. This is called the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24 and 25. This is a very difficult passage. I was reading through this and I thought, oh boy. I get to open up the prophetic word. And I've heard it said, if you want to fill a church or a Sunday school class, teach on prophecy. And everyone goes, ooh, I want to know what's going to happen in the future. And I've heard it said, too, if you want to empty out your church or your class, teach on Romans and sin and God's judgment, and you'll clear out the room. So, today we're doing prophecy. But, I hope I don't disappoint you. I don't have any charts, any graphs. I do not know when Jesus is coming back. I hope you're not too disappointed. But I think we do learn some very important things. And I want to take this opportunity to do a little side trail. And I want to talk about this idea of open and closed issues. There are some things in the church, as we say, these are closed issues. Matters of doctrine that we will, as I say, this is a hill to die on. The life, death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation by faith in Him alone. This is not a point to waver on. This is a closed issue. If we don't get this right, we are no longer in the Christian camp. The inerrancy of Scripture. This is God's word to us. This is a closed issue. This one we've got to get right. But there's some things that are a little bit outside of this. Things where we can have some different points of view, and we can still be brothers and sisters in the Lord. We can still fellowship together. And prophecy is kind of one of those things where we can have some difference of opinion, and it's okay. I think we first started coming here to chapel. It was about 2009. And I remember talking to Tim in the basement, Tim Goff, and I said, so, okay, Titan Drive here. I know you guys are kind of like in the Plymouth Brethren camp. And if you're not sure what that is, look it up. It's a deep dive. But we're kind of in this camp. And I said, so this particular church, like, where do you guys sit with prophecy? I mean, are you pre-trib, post-trib? I mean, are you somewhere in there? And I was just so surprised. Tim said, well, you know, some people have some different ideas on those things. But it's not really something we divide company over. Okay, that's very refreshing. How many of you guys have been in a church where your view of prophecy is a point of, like, time to go out the door? If you're not with me, you're out. Like, okay, I mean, that's, we're not there, okay? So, yes, you may disagree. You may have a different point of view. And I'm going to hit this some really broad strokes today. I'm not going to dial in and say, here's what, this is what it is, and you got to get on board. This is a broad stroke, in my mind, kind of an open-handed issue. And I came across this list, um, this is kind of the ESV study Bible. 
and maybe just a way to gauge the things that we hold on to. What things do we need to hold on to tightly? And what things can we kind of have an open hand about where we can have some difference of opinion and we can still sit together, fellowship together, and we can still be in the family of faith and hold different things. And especially, you know, biblical clarity, super important. Its effect on other points of doctrine, super important. Consensus among believers. You know, there's a broad scope of people inside Christianity who take different views of prophecy. I think it's okay. I think we're going to be all right on this one. I found ironic over the years, I've noticed the two bookends are some of the most divisive things in the Christian church. The beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, how old is the earth? People will, this one's like a make or break. And the end, how does this thing end? A make or break. And I'm not sure it, those things need to be. I found this chart. Any of you have the ESV study Bible? I found this like super interesting. Me and a couple of young guys were looking at this and trying to like pin some things down. In the center, we find just some absolutes, the things we must stand on. And as the circle moves out, there's some things that are merely convictions, opinions, and there's some things that are just flat-out questions we can disagree. So with that in mind, on with the message. There are several ways to view prophecy. I think it kind of boils down like the three kind of key groups. And how you look at this will depend how you read today's passage. So I boil it down like the amillennial camp. And there is some variety in this. And if I get this wrong, please be gracious. You can throw rocks at me as I look in the parking lot. But yeah, the amillennial view is like, we are living in the kingdom now. Christ is reigning spiritually in heaven. And this is the kingdom. Like We are the kingdom right now. And there's many groups who hold this view. Groups who take scripture seriously. Groups who love the Lord. And they've come to this conclusion. There's a group called preterists. And here's the idea. And there's some different variety in this camp. And a lot of the mainline American denominations take this point of view. They'll say, essentially, prophecy was wrapped up in the year AD 70. We'll talk about this a little bit. But that was when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem, burned the temple. And we talked about the no stones we left upon each other. As they burned the temple, they pulled apart the stones to get down to get the gold that had melted. A literal fulfillment. And there's like partial preterists. There's like uh, complete preterists or hyper preterists. I mean, if you like going down rabbit trails, I mean, have at it. It's good stuff. It's interesting stuff. But there's a prophetic, a futurist view who would say these things are still out in the future. And I came across this idea of now, but not yet. Okay? So in some sense, these things have had little glimpses of what's to happen, but there's going to be a future and ultimate fulfillment at some point down the road. I'm sure I've already stepped on somebody's toes. I'm sure somebody is already offended. I'm moving on. 
So here's the, I came, I found this so helpful too. I was talking with a friend. I was like, you know, the irony is even Jesus' own disciples who were there with him on the Mount of Olives during this Olivet Discourse, they heard what he said. He was explaining like his plans. But it says the disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. <clears throat> so someone I like to listen to on my podcast, guys, he says, and I like this, you can write this down, the ultimate interpretation is going to be fulfillment. So when it happens, then we're going to know for sure. So let's have grace amongst each other. And I think when this all comes down to it, we're going to be like, oh, that's what Jesus meant. So I may have missed a, something along the way, but when it's all said and done, we're going to look back and say, oh, Lord, you were right. And you told us. And we're going to see more fully on that day. So, today's passage begins with this phrase. <clears throat> so, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. That is a loaded phrase. The abomination of desolation. To those living in Jesus' time, that meant something very specific. So an abomination, we don't use these words very often. It means something that causes disgust or hatred. So you look at it and like, that thing is gross. I can't stand it. Desolation, a complete state of emptiness or destruction. Here's the picture of the Romans. Somebody made a rendition. This is the Romans when they came to destroy Jerusalem. It's what it would have looked like. So he makes reference to the book of Daniel. And again, people who love prophecy love Daniel. That might be a little small for you guys. I'm going to read these verses. This phrase is mentioned three times in the book of Daniel. And this is a tough passage. It's talking about weeks and days and timelines. And depending which view of prophecy you take, you read this in a very different way. I'm going to read these three verses. And there's some conclusions we can draw by looking at this. So first, uh, Daniel 9.27 he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Chapter 11, verse 31. Forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Third verse. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. 
How do I do with this? I stole this from a site, got questions. Super helpful website. I think they give some very concise, solid answers to many thousands of difficult questions. If you got a question, great source. They come to these five things. As you look at these three verses out of Daniel, Jesus referenced them. His disciples, they would have known Daniel. They would have known the abomination of desolation. They'd be like, oh yeah, Lord, we know what you're talking about. So note these five things. One, a future ruler will make a treaty with the people of Israel. The terms of the treaty are going to be for a week. So we talk about weeks, we're talking seven years. So sometime in the future, there's going to be a future leader. He's going to make a covenant, a treaty with Israel of some sort. And then halfway, he's going to break his treaty. He's going to bring in his forces. He's going to put an end to the sacrificial system in Israel. He's going to defile the temple. He's going to put something sacrilegious, something that is going to be an abomination. They're going to hate it, but they're going to have to look at it because he's got the troops. And it's going to be for a time... There's a timeline on it. So 1,290 days, about three and a half years. And those of you who are prophecy people are going, hmm, three and a half years, the mid-trib view. So those of you guys who are prophecy people are like nodding, and I'm sure you have a working theory about this. For this message, let's just leave it at this. Three and a half years, some kind of an agreement is going to be broken. I just want you to consider this. Again, Paul, talking about a future antichrist, a future man of sin. Paul talks about the same thing. So after Jesus has been resurrected, ascended, Paul is establishing the Christian church and his doctrine. And he says this to the Thessalonian church. Let no one deceive you in any way. And we're going to talk about deception today. For that day, the day of the Lord, it will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. This is what Daniel was talking about. There's going to be a leader who's going to make an arrangement with Israel. He's going to oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Would a Jew who worshiped the temple, would they find that disgusting? Would they find that offensive? If someone set themselves up to be God themselves, who was not God, would we find this disgusting? The answer is yes. So, possible fulfillments. Historically speaking, there's kind of like three possibilities here. The first one, in the time of Jesus, in the year 167, when the Greek Empire broke up, it broke up into four parts. So Alexander dies. His empire goes to four different of his generals. One of them found what they call like the Seleucid Empire. So there's an empire, and one of their leaders, this man Antiochus Epiphanes. Keep in mind, this is... B.C. So Jesus' disciples like, yeah, the abomination, we saw it. 
here's an artist's rendering based on like coins and whatnot. They're like, well, yeah, we know about this. And Antiochus, he comes, he attacks Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, and on the altar, he takes a pig, which is unclean in Jewish culture, and he slaughters a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, in the temple, and sets himself up as Antiochus Epiphanes, the great one. So he is slaughtering a pig in the temple. And to a Jew, there is nothing more disgusting than this. And he destroys the city, destroys, burns the temple. And so Jesus' disciples are like, well, yeah, Jesus, this already happened. But he's telling them here in this passage, you're going to see it. Like, whoa, hold on. Another possibility is Titus. So in the year A.D. 70, so 70 years after Jesus, the Roman legions come into Jerusalem. They sack the city. Titus comes into the temple and sets up a statue of Zeus in the temple and burns. Burns the temple, destroys the city. And possibly, people look forward to a future Antichrist. So as you look at Thessalonians, there's a future view. So I think along the way, it seems that prophecy sometimes gets fulfilled like this. We get glimpses of things along the way that we think could be what it is. So in the past, these things have happened. There have been abominations of desolation. But I believe we're also looking forward to a future abomination, an antichrist. So I'm going to throw this out here. Some future possible events that people have looked at and been like, this is it. This is the end. When World War I rolled around, if you look at Christian literature in the early 1900s, people thought World War I, like, this is it. This is the war, in fact, they called it the war to end all wars. Like, that's it. The Great Depression and Social Security. People are like, you're going to assign a number to every person, and that's going to be their identity? We're like, ooh, end times. This is it. World War II and the Holocaust. The extermination of the Jews. Just the powers of Germany sweeping across Europe. You know, it's the invention of barcodes. I don't know how many guys in the 1980s saw, like, Christian TV. I mean, like, you know, everybody has a barcode on their forehead or something. You're going through Safeway and scanning yourself. And I don't say it to make a mockery of it, but... You know, we speculate about these things like, this is it. Like, we're looking at the scripture. We're putting the pieces together. Like, this is it. You know, Y2K. Do you guys remember Y2K? I was a young man in the year 2000, and I was driving to work. I um, caught Chuck Missler, if you know Chuck Missler. He was on the Y2K cutting edge. Like, this is it, you guys. Be ready. I mean, we're here, and I'm not saying it's not, I don't mean to make light of it, but be aware, these things have happened over the course of history, and microchips, and vaccines. Like, that's it, vaccines, and micro, what do you call them, nanorobots, 
being injected into us, and this is the mark. This is the sign. This is the end. So, on that note, pardon the detour. Let's get to the text. So, what Jesus says regarding this, the abomination, he says, let those who are in Judea. Interestingly, this is a Middle East focused prophecy. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. And the point here is, when this thing does come down and they see the abomination and they know what it is, he's saying, get out of town, act fast, it is time to go. Like the Israelites before the uh, Passover were told to have their garments gird about their loins. I mean, like, hey, it's time to run. Get ready to go. Don't go get your stuff. Don't go back to your house. Get out of town now. And if you're pregnant, bad news. I don't know what to say. I'm not having been pregnant myself. I cannot imagine having fleeing into the hills, into the wilderness, carrying a child with the expectation of how is this going to work out. Traveling in the wintertime up into the mountains. Not a good thing. And he makes a point, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. We just took a list of like, things that have happened in the course of history. And we sort of feel like nothing like this has ever happened. But if you study history, you realize you know, history does kind of run in cycles. And these things, they do happen. Jesus' point here is when this happens, when the great tribulation falls upon the earth, God's final judgment, and if I'm not giving myself away, I do lean toward a futurist view on this. I think this is still to come. That's where I lean. Others have different points, and I respect them. And I honestly, I see where it's a little detour. I over the years, I've realized, you know, as I listen to other people share like their views on these things, like you know, I see how you got there. I see you do take the Bible seriously. And I realize, you know, I don't think other people with different opinions, they're not just making things up. But yeah, people have serious views they've arrived at from the scripture, from history. And that's where they get it. But no, I do take a futurist. I believe this will happen. There will be a tribulation on the earth like we have never seen before. And we've seen some bad stuff. And people have done horrible things to each other, the aftermath of World War I was unimaginable. And people believed the things that they saw people doing to each other, new ways of destroying vast armies, the sheer carnage of the thing, 
people thought this has got to be it. But no, something bigger is coming. And then he says, verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ. There he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I've told you beforehand. If they say to you, Look, he's here in the wilderness. Do not go out. If they say, Look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as a lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's making it plain. When Jesus comes back, it will be plain and obvious, and you will not miss it. When he first comes, comes as a child in a manger in an obscure city born to a poor family and people missed it and you're almost like I can see how you missed this I mean it wasn't what they were expecting but he says when I come back this next time you are not going to miss it we spent some time in uh, South China near Hong Kong I have never seen a thunderstorm like that if any of you experienced a tropical thunderstorm and you're like it starts on this side of the sky just like it says it rolls from the east and it just fills the sky and the earth shakes and your windows rattle and nobody misses it and someone says the next day did you hear that thunder last night and around here we go no and i guess i missed it but in like parts of the world, the tropical regions, you don't miss it. It shakes the earth. And I believe when Jesus Christ shows up again, and I believe he will, it will be in power, it will be in glory, and you will not miss it. It is going to be awesome. And this phrase, when the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, like that is the weirdest saying. This has no context for me. One commentator put it like this. It's like say, it's a common phrase, a colloquialism. It's like saying, where there is smoke, there is fire. And haven't we enjoyed this August? We have made it through August without fog-like smoke. And like we say, when there is smoke, there is fire. When you can't breathe and it's in your eyes, we know something is going on. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you are going to see the sign and you are going to know that the time has come. It is that day. So Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. There is not consensus on this. I read many articles and listened to a few guys. Some like, this is like literally, you know, sun is going to snuff out. Stars, like the stars themselves will fall and there will be a starless sky and you are going to know. Other commentators and scholars feel this is like angelic language. 
that the angels are going to fall from their place and come and do havoc on the earth in this time. And be honest, this to me is like one of those open hand kind of things. I did not come to a conclusion except to say, when Jesus comes, whether spiritual, natural, or literal, you're going to see it and you are going to know it and there will be no doubt. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man. Amen. And there's a time I feel this earth like those who are pursuing God's kingdom. We feel the forces of the world, the kingdom of the world pressing in. And I don't know if you feel this, I do, that those wanting to be faithful, it is getting more and more difficult day by day and year by year. And I look at the things in the news and the world around us, and I do, I feel the world pressing in on us. And do we despair? No. Do we give up hope and say, well, I guess... I guess we're going to lose this one. I feel the poles of popular opinion pushing against us. No. We know that no matter what the world does, when Jesus Christ comes again and he sets his foot down the Mount of Olives, the tribes of the earth, the nations, the world kingdom that is pushing now and it looks like they're winning, all of a sudden they're going to cry out, and the mourning of this, it's a cry of grief, a cry of regret. We were wrong, but it's not a cry of repentance. And so as we are sitting here now, we feel the weight of sin in the world. We feel the consequence of, around, of it around us now. And thank God his door is still open for us, that if you feel the weight that before the Lord, you're coming up short, you're still in your sins, you can still turn now and submit to his kingdom now. And you don't have to be among those who mourn at his coming. You can be those who rejoice and say, Amen. Finally, Lord, you're here, and you are going to set right the course of this world. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, his chosen, from the corners of the world, and he will gather them together into his kingdom from one end of heaven to the other. And he's going to bring them all into his kingdom. And the big question is, what do we do with this? And again, I have no timeline for you. But I do know this. What do we do? He says, run. I'm like, this is in some ways really counter to um, like our idea of the victorious Christian marching forward. But you know, sometimes we need to know what to do, how to respond. Jesus says, run. He says, do not be fooled. So, if someone is coming to you with the gospel, other than the gospel that we have, the faith once delivered to the saints, 
we have it. It's not a new teaching. It's not a secret. If you're in Judea and you see the abomination, run for the hills. Here, I don't know. I'm going to suggest this. Number one, like, what do we do? Be aware, respond appropriately. I appreciated a couple weeks ago, a month ago, Jerry said, you know, let's don't stick our head in the sand. As believers, we should be aware of world events. Be aware of what's going on. We can pray for those. We can be behind those who are suffering. Be aware, and we can respond appropriately. And it occurred to me as I was reading this, there are like seasons. Know how to respond in the right season. There are times to charge forward and to expand and to move out. And there are times I think we need to stand our ground. We need to be faithful. And we feel the world pushing in. And perhaps I'm reading this wrong. I'm open to that. But there's a time I think we just need to strengthen. Stand firm, we're told. Hold our ground. Don't give up. Build one another up in our faith. And there's a season of that. And as Jesus says, in times, the season is to get out of town. He says, when you see this thing, this abomination, run. I think about through the book of Acts. In chapter uh, chapter 8, there's a great persecution. And they split. They didn't stand and fight. It was time to go. And great blessing was brought from that. The gospel went out. But it was time to move. It's not always time to stand. Sometimes it's time to move somewhere else. So be aware. Know what's happening around us. Don't put our hands in the sand. Don't build walls around us to the extent we do not know what is happening. Be aware. This one struck me the most. Expect to suffer and be faithful. I think especially like in American Christianity, we've gotten, I'll include myself in this, we've gotten really cozy. Like we have this idea of how, how life should run. We have a plan. You grow up, you go to school, you get a job, you go to work for 30 years, you save up some money, then you put your feet up, and you just kind of coast, coast off into the sunset. This is kind of our American dream, isn't it? buy a house, you have three kids, and life is fantastic. I think we need to expect to suffer. As Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said, look for this. There's going to be tribulation. There are going to be anti-Christ forces coming against you. And you may have to walk away from it and leave it all behind. And I'll admit this tugs on my own heart. I feel like I've arrived at a point in life where I've kind of, over the years, built some stuff up. And the thought of leaving it behind, if Christ calls, am I willing? I sure, I hope so. Pray the Lord to give me strength that I would leave this world behind when it's called, called to do so. Are you holding on? You're sitting there. What are you holding on to? That you're like, Lord, when the time comes and you call me, when suffering comes, when I have to make a stand, would you leave your job? Young people, would you leave school? Do you, I mean, 
taking a stand, if you're suffering for the sake of Christ, are you willing to ruffle the feathers of your family? For some of us, family is the biggest, that's our idol, family. We hold on to it, and it's a good thing. But when called to, do you let go of those things? Are you prepared to suffer from family for the sake of Christ and to be faithful? God's purposes, I believe, are big. I certainly think God's purposes in the world are bigger than Tyson Drive Bible Chapel. God's kingdom is bigger. What we do here, we're a little piece of God's bigger kingdom and family. But yeah, God is doing things around the nation, around our city, and certainly God's kingdom is around the world. And if you don't know it, you should do some looking up. There are brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering mightily for the gospel today. I think we need to be aware that we should expect not to be insulated and not to feel bad for them, but to know it's probably coming. And we need to be ready to be faithful when that time comes. And finally, look to Jesus. I know like going through prophetic things, it's kind of fun, it's kind of exciting. You like to see how things are going to play out. But the ultimate point, I think, is this. We are not looking for an abomination of desolation. We're not looking for a temple to be rebuilt. Although those things are starting to, we see those old things like, ooh, like, okay, it's coming. You know, in 1947, Israel became a nation. And believe me, people were just going, this is it. This is it. They're building the temple. The Lord's coming back next year. It didn't pan out that way. But do we take our eyes off Jesus? And the answer is no. No, we're not looking for an abomination. We're looking for Jesus. We're not looking for a tribulation, and even if it comes, so be it. We're looking to Jesus. And I want to end on this. I'm going to read from the book of Revelation. So you're all excited now? Finally, you got to Revelation. So Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read this just a little bit out of order. I'm going to flip-flop some verses to make a point. But Revelation chapter 7, Jesus, Jesus says this. Behold, he's, sorry, John writes this about Jesus. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. That's what he said, wasn't it? Like the thunder from the east to the west. Every eye is going to see him. Even those who pierced him, his own people, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Even so, amen. If you do not know Christ as Lord, Savior, King of your life, this is what happens. The tribes of the earth will wail, and you will join them. But for those of us who know him, to him who loves us, Verse 5. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I think that's the point. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen.
So, Lord, we're thankful for your word to us. We just want to pray for this unity among our body and these things that could be divisive, and yet we know, Lord, we look for you. We know you're not calling us to easy, but you're calling us to faithfulness. And so, Lord, we pray as we face persecution, tribulation, we do not shy from it, but rather give us a heart of faithfulness to pursue after you. So, we just thank you for your great love to us, and we look forward to the day of redemption when you come to reign righteously over this entire earth. And so we thank you for this, and we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.